Anyway, whilst we're waiting, I just wanted to thank you all for coming. And uh, we did, I mean, thanks to, and to Madison for organizing the entire thing. Thanks to Madison, you are now in a comfortable room, which is less hot than you otherwise would have been upstairs. And we really honored to have uh, Aaron Schuster here today. He's on a book tour uh, for his new book and it's good to see him to uh, talk about it a little bit here in particular his first uh, chapter, the chapter on complaint, yeah? And Zizia, who's been working really hard at the, at the summer school is uh, also joined us to offer some uh, reading of uh, Aaron's book. Uh, what we'll do tonight is uh, first uh, Aaron will... Um, give a short reading of his chapter and a resume of the book, maybe. Then um, um, Zizek will uh, respond for a few minutes, and then we'll open it uh, up to discussion. Uh, whilst we're waiting, I mean, uh, I just wanted to let you know that um, yeah. I started reading this book. I got it full price uh, before the rest of you. It's a fantastic book, and I can't recommend it enough. And if you go to, what is the room later? G16 later, after we finish, we'll have a reception and you'll be able to buy the book uh, at £15. So you get surplus value and you get it signed as well and there's uh, wine there as well. Uh, and I just wanted to say a couple of things about the book. I mean, if you've noticed, uh, it's one of those uh, books in Rijek series on a short circuit, which supposedly takes a, a major text and interrupts it with the reading of a minor text, except in the case of Aaron. Yeah, and the whole series uh, includes various luminary texts, including by Mladen Dollar and Alenka Banking and even Zizek. So the whole series is worth investing in. Uh, but in, in Aaron's case, instead of taking one minor in sense of marginalized text <coughs> and interrupting it with a major text, it takes two major forms of literature, Lacan and Deleuze, and presents us with what we're quite used to in 2016, actually, another double blackmail. I mean, to form the two to borrow Zizek's, uh, Zizek's uh, uh, title of his recent book. So we've had so many double blackmails in 2016. We had, you know, do we go for racist Brexit or do we go for neoliberal EU? Do we go for um, opening the door as widely as possible to refugees, as Zizek said, or do we draw the, uh, pull the drawbridge? Or even as Aaron just uh, mentioned, you know, with the Turkish coup, do we denounce a coup because it goes against uh, uh, democratic processes or do we applaud it because um, uh, Erdogan was behaving increasingly authoritarianly. So this is what Aaron presents us with as well, a double, a double blackmail. Do we choose you know, uh, Deleuze or do we choose Lacan? And Aaron's fantastic achievement really is to enable us to have both. So we have a cake and eat it. He's uh, able to uh, um, to read both of them and inform both of them, disrupt Lacan with uh, Deleuze and Deleuze with Lacan. And it's a beautiful, I cannot recommend it enough. And as I say, you get it at a discount uh, later on. Uh, but I'll let him talk about it first. And uh, I think he talked about the honoured yeah, discourse of complaint. Okay. No, it's really a thanks for this um, invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm not often in London. And immediately, sort of the um, circumstances of this. Um, 
event sort of illustrate one of the theses of the book. I was here last week, and there was just kind of this miserable um, weather. And I was saying, is it really like this the whole summer? Kind of this terrible uh, gray, cold weather. I come back here, and it's kind of sweltering heat. So you see that somehow there's this oscillation between kind of a miserable sort of lack and a kind of stifling surplus somehow. So somehow uh, maybe English weather illustrates the paradox of uh, enjoyment. But in any event, okay, what I would like to do is give a kind of summary of the book. So I'll sort of present, um, I'll, I'll try to explain what I was trying to accomplish in the book and then sort of talk about um, the, the major lines of argument. And I think there's really four kind of different aspects. Sometimes I'm even tempted to think there's almost four different books that are somehow cohabiting within this book. Um, so first of all, um, the book is, is about pleasure. And my basic thesis is that pleasure is a confusing, complicated, and kind of conflicted phenomena. It's much more uh, difficult and ambiguous than it's often made out to be. So the kind of classic moral wisdom that would say that uh, the human being is seeking pleasure or trying to avoid pain or that somehow pleasure is good and pain is bad – After all, that's an idea that informs a lot of um, philosophy, moral psychology, and economics today. Um, I think this idea presents a far too simple sort of picture of human existence, and that um, it's just the kind of opposite. I mean, that what we want and what we enjoy are often not the same thing, and against the idea that we're kind of striving for happiness, um, one can have just the opposite impression. And I think even if you're not a Freudian, so even if you don't buy into psychoanalysis, one can have the impression that human beings are actually astoundingly ingenious at engineering their own discontent. And they're very creative and very inventive at that, at creating all sorts of ways of, of being unhappy. Um, there's a wonderful line uh, on this by Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche says, man does not seek pleasure, only the Englishman does. Um, <laughs> I think we can even, given sort of recent political developments, one can even sort of doubt this wisdom, um, this kind of cliched image of the Englishman as kind of hard-headed, pragmatic, and so forth. But Nietzsche, of course, was making fun of this kind of, um, or trying to poke fun at this kind of utilitarian moral psychology. Um, I think another aphorism that even goes... uh, really to the heart of the matter and to the core of what I consider the kind of Freudian picture of human existence or Freudian sort of contemporary moral psychology is from a French writer I like a lot, a kind of aphorist named Georges Perros. And Perros has a, has a wonderful quote, and it goes like this. Uh, he says, It's true that people go to a lot of trouble in order to be unhappy, but are they? <laughs> and what I like very much about this line is it kind of reverses, again, the classical um, picture, the kind of classical moral picture, that essentially human beings are striving for happiness, they're trying to actualize their being, they're trying to fulfill their desires, but of course there's all sorts of sort of obstacles and conflicts along the way that will derail them. Now this is the kind of, okay, classical picture of, of morality, which still is, is powerful today, still this idea that people somehow want to be happy. And I think the Freudian idea, or more modern approach to this moral psychology, would just be the kind of opposite. That somehow human beings are striving to sabotage their own being. They're trying to undermine their own desires. But some, somehow they're so incompetent, they're so bad at that, that they, they, they can't even manage. They even manage to bungle their own self-sabotage. So they become happy as it were, by accident. So this is the line. Human beings go to a lot of trouble in order to be unhappy, but are they really unhappy? Isn't there a kind of content in the discontent? 
So the happiness, I think, for for us moderns in a modern um, universe is not the kind of goal or the telos of an actualized being, but it's more a kind of accident or byproduct, something you're not aiming at, but you kind of stumble into, and it can be quite um, surprising. So in examining pleasure, I actually go back to Freud, and that's sort of the centerpiece of the book, the middle chapter, where I reread Freud, Freud's theories of pleasure, um, and his three essays on theory of uh, sexuality, as a kind of... Um, theory that recapitulates a lot of the debates in the history of philosophy. So I think one can reread so the history of philosophical ideas and theories about pleasure and desire um, through Freud. And one can see that actually Freudian psychoanalysis doesn't have a unitary, so it doesn't have a kind of single definition of what pleasure is or how the pleasure principle operates, but actually is a kind of, you can read the text as a kind of battleground where numerous sort of philosophical theories meet and, and, and are in conflict with one another. And I think Part of the greatness of Freud is actually to present such a fragmented and complex theory of pleasure. So at some point, I suggest that one theory, one theory of pleasure is more platonic. At another point, he seems to be more Aristotelian. Uh, again, there's a kind of more Thomistic sort of theory, and then also in kind of Nietzschean um, Aspect. So I think in the book, I don't give a sort of comprehensive history of pleasure, but a kind of strategic one, where I try to show sort of the complexity of Freud's own um, approach to pleasure, which really can be summarized by that strange German term, Lust. And as Freud himself so says in the three essays, that the problem with the concept of Lust is that it actually has a double sense. So it can mean the feeling of satisfaction or pleasure, but it can also designate desire. Like you can say in German, like I have, like I have lust for something in, in that sense. Like I have a desire for something. And you can see that Freud's real problem was trying to figure out how those two aspects of Lust, of pleasure, can be a combined, how to create a synthesis between them, how they, would, how they would interact, desire, wishing, willing, wanting on one hand, and, and uh, satisfaction, enjoyment, pleasure on the other. And in fact, I think we can also read this in an interesting Hegelian way, that it seems to be a kind of speculative word, a word that contains a meaning and its opposite. So I also go and analyze all the different ways, all the different possibilities of combining these different meanings, okay? Um, part of my interest also is to return to the French debates about the philosophy of desire in the 1960s and 1970s. So I'm very interested in this period and the idea that desire is a kind of fundamental philosophical category. Or one starts um, doing philosophy with the concept of desire. And I think the high point of these debates were really in the 60s and 70s in France. And if you if you reconstruct these debates, what's interesting, so if you kind of take a step back, is that it seems like there's a tremendous sort of terminological confusion and even a kind of um, struggle. You can even have the impression there's a kind of struggle for philosophers to decide which is the most radical, sort of voluptuous term, if I can put it that way. So Deleuze, for instance, will say pleasure, terrible. That's a terrible word. Let's just get rid of it. Why is pleasure a terrible word? Because it always seems to refer back to the idea of lack and fulfillment. Instead, I want to start thinking with a new word, desire. Desire doesn't refer to lack. It will refer to the enjoyment of a force. Okay. 
But then Foucault comes along and says, you know, desire, that's a terrible word. Let's just get rid of that term. Um, why? Largely for the same reasons. Because desire for Foucault refers to lack and also to a kind of um, psychoanalytic hermeneutics. And he suggests, why don't we go back to the term pleasure and to the idea of the self as an agent of pleasure. So philosophy is of self-creation. That's his return to the Greeks. Um, you also have, um, and then Lacan will say, well, also I would downgrade pleasure and I would prefer the term um, enjoyment. But there's something else at stake there as well. And you, you, I think one shouldn't forget Sartre a bit earlier, but Sartre's rule of a kind of philosophy of desire as a perpetual failure. So my response to this, to try to kind of get at the core, I think, of what was at stake of this debate, is actually also, like Foucault, I return to the Greeks. Um, but unlike Foucault, so instead of returning to the Greeks as a kind of stylistics of existence or kind of self as agent of pleasure, as I said, um, I take a kind of more flat-footed approach. I actually go back to the Greek debates about the meaning of pleasure, so of hedone, and use that as a kind of grounding to then give a, a new sense to the terms and the relationship between the terms drive and desire, pleasure and enjoyment. And I think the most fundamental debate here in Greek philosophy comes down to that debate between Plato and Aristotle and practically the entire history of philosophy. All, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but not much. That all subsequent philosophical sort of reflections on the nature of pleasure somehow refer back to that inaugural debate between Plato and Aristotle. They either take one side or the other, or they try to combine them in some kind of creative way. So what are these two um, paradigms of pleasure? Um, Plato defines pleasure as the feeling of a lack. So I'll just state this very simply. Um, for Plato, pleasure is the feeling of a lack. For Aristotle, pleasure is the enjoyment of an activity. Um, for Plato, pleasure refers to a feeling. So it will be the soul's perception of some kind of process of replenishment, um, filling a lack or getting rid of some kind of surplus irritation, but essentially returning to equilibrium. Uh, Aristotle, on the other hand, says it has nothing to do with lack, um, and the, the, living, the living being, being as such even, can't be defined in terms of a static equilibrium of elements, but being is defined by a kind of dynamic force or an energy, an energeia, and that pleasure is linked to the living being's self-actualization. So whereas Plato will use examples of like eating and drinking as forms of satisfaction, um, Aristotle's primary examples will be uh, thinking, uh, seeing, and so forth, living in the active sense of the word. So I think this is the kind of ground, the basic ground for reevaluating, for understanding different concepts of pleasure. Now, the other thing I'm interested in and that I return to is also a very weird idea you get in Greek philosophy. And as far as I know, that idea was pretty much ignored by everyone. But I think it's really fascinating. And that's that for the Greeks, um, the best pleasure, the best pleasure, the purest pleasure, the greatest and most intense pleasure was philosophy. Nobody will buy this today. And especially in a kind of post-Freudian sense, you know, the gold standard for pleasure is sexuality. But I think it's interesting to actually take the Greeks seriously on this point, that thinking is the best example of pleasure and that philosophy is about the greatest pleasure. And so I explore that in different ways and in some ways that, um, let's say, also cut against the grain of, let's say, Plato and um, Aristotle's own uh, pronouncements. I think one of the kind of wonderful... Um, episodes in Greek philosophy that illustrates just how deeply pleasurable thinking is, is actually the first joke 
um, the first joke about philosophy, so in the kind of history of philosophy that's recounted in the Theotetus, and it's a joke about Thales. So, you know, Thales one day is contemplating the stars, he's walking along, he's deeply absorbed in his contemplation, and he falls into a ditch, he falls into a well, and then there's the Thracian maid who laughs at him. This is kind of the inaugural scene. This is somehow a kind of primal scene of philosophy. And of course, it's read in many different ways. And the standard, the standard approach to reading it is somehow this is a joke about the dangers of professional thinking. The idea that the philosopher's head is in the clouds, think Aristophanes, whereas like, they're ignorant of practical problems in the life world. Now, that's not my approach to the joke. I think what the joke illustrates is actually um, pleasure's um, power, deeply inertial power, that if you enjoy something, it means you want to do it more and more. And in fact, I think the fundamental trait of pleasure, and this brings us within the sphere of what Lacan would call jouissance or enjoyment, it's not feeling good. So I think this is also kind of, um, this is part of the inheritance of a kind of platonic model that we associate pleasure with somehow a good feeling or an isthesis, a perception. What's interesting in the Aristotelian conception is pleasure is not directly um, related to feeling. It's actually, the re- it's actually defined as the relationship between an agent or a subject and an activity. And I think pleasure takes place when you're absorbed in, or let's say surrendered to, an activity that sort of takes over in itself and goes its own way. So that you can actually maybe not even be aware of your pleasure because you're simply, something is simply happening. And I think this idea of Thales being so kind of enjoying philosophy, so absorbed that he falls into a ditch, means that indeed it, it underscores that kind of inertial power of pleasure that you can see the real strength of pleasure is when you ignore everything else. And that there's something interesting about pleasure that it wants to keep going and pursue its own path irrespective of any other kind of obstacles, limits, outside considerations, and so forth. Okay. So, somehow... Philosophy is the best pleasure. Uh, you could also put it another way, and this is how I also explore it in the book, that the idea that it's very interesting to me that somehow the theory of pleasure um, ends up being about the pleasure of theory, we could say, in, in, in ancient philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not until psychoanalysis, until Lacan, that somebody actually takes up this idea uh, in a serious manner. So Lacan will also say for us, and this is in one of the later seminars, um, thought is jouissance. Thinking is pleasure, except that our idea of what thinking is has changed. Because for psychoanalysis, thinking refers to unconscious thought processes, so that you would see in slips of the tongue or dreams or jokes or symptoms, for example. But it's actually those symbolic processes that are carrying pleasure, so that thought is pleasure. And I think that's very interesting that Lacan reaffirms this ancient Greek notion that it's really fallen um, somehow by the wayside. I'm not even sure how seriously the Greeks intended that, the idea that pleasure is the gold standard, pleasure is really the highest and greatest pleasure. Okay, that thinking, uh, philosophy is the highest and greatest pleasure. Okay, but Second part of the book, then, about um, complaining. In fact, I open the book with a kind of long um, analysis of, of complaining. And for me, complaining is just an excellent example, kind of way into the topic, that really um, illustrates how strange, perverse, um, tortuous, conflicted, difficult the human relation to pleasure is. And even on a very simple level, um, that's quite interesting. So let's just start on a simple phenomenological level. I think that's quite interesting. Everybody knows... Um, those people who really enjoy complaining. And I think that's an odd phenomena that um, you can really enjoy something that's based on uh, pain or that's based on hardships, slights, unfortunate, aggravating situations or even unbearable situations. 
So I start with complaining as a kind of example of pleasure, and the book actually opens with a, a joke. So I start with this joke. It's a, it's a well-known genre of jokes, kind of two Jews on a, on a train in Russia. And uh, the younger man kind of sits next to this older man, and the older man throughout the ride keeps saying, like, Oi, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty. He keeps repeating this, I'm so thirsty. So finally, the young man can't take it anymore, and he goes to the other car where there's drinks, and he brings a glass of water, and he gives it to the old man. So the old man drinks the water, he calms down, everything looks relaxed. But like a few minutes later, he sees the old man is starting to kind of get agitated, he starts shaking. And finally, the old man, you know, he, he, can't, um, he can't hold it in anymore, and he bursts out like, oh, I was so thirsty, I was so thirsty. <laughs> now, I think if we really deeply meditate on this joke, you can really discover everything you need to know about how human desire works. I won't go through all the nuances of the joke, but I think you can really read it in three, if not four, ways. You can ask about what is being complained about, so the object of complaint. And what's interesting there is, of course, what the old man seems to be saying is, you can satisfy my demand. I'm asking for water. You give it to me. But something in my desire still persists, is not satisfied. So you can look at the object of complaint. Uh, you can look at the addressee, who's being addressed in the complaint, and you can say, well, it's not so much about satisfying thirst, but you could say what the old man really wants is to be recognized as a thirsty human being. So it's really about manipulation and control. And you know how much in life people are complaining in order to somehow manipulate, control, dominate the other person. Uh, I think the best example in pop culture of this, if you ever watch Sopranos, think of Livia, the mother, who's constantly complaining, clearly in all, only in order to sort of dominate um, her son. Uh, you can also look at this in terms of, and I think that's a maybe more interesting aspect, the activity of complaining itself. So it's clear that the old man um, simply wants to complain because that's part of his very being. It's his drive to complain. And he can be very devious, very clever about it. And if you're really a gifted, if you're really a great complainer, it means you can be more or less indifferent to the external circumstance. It doesn't matter if things are good or if things are bad. You can find a way. You can always find something to complain about. So in that sense, complaining almost is like a kind of Kantian schematism. It's sort of complaining is a kind of a priori, as it were, a structure that, that constructs the world in a certain way. It's a kind of way of being in the world. And then I think the most psychoanalytic way, the question is to ask, who actually is complaining? And that's a question that will be posed in psychoanalysis. When you start speaking and you're starting explaining kind of aggravations or problems of your life, are you speaking? Is that your father speaking? I mean, okay, to be very vulgar. But who really is speaking in you when, you, when you're complaining? Who is the real subject of that? So I think there's multiple dimensions of, of, of this problem. And somehow this joke for me really encapsulates um, the complexities of a... Uh, of, uh, of a human desire. Now, the second reason why I, I look at complaining is I actually want to break a certain cliche in philosophy. Um, as you know, okay, in philosophy, but let's say in intellectual discourse more broadly, we are always talking about criticism and critique. Um, sometimes there's even a kind of beyond of critique, I don't know, criticality or something. Um, but never is complaining, at least my knowledge, been really raised to the level of the concept. So I think complaining is sort of the poor, um, neglected cousin, somehow, of, of criticism and critique. But couldn't we reverse this picture and understand criticism and critique as kind of sub, you know, sublimations, refinements of what is what I take to be a kind of anthropological constant? So I treat complaining as a kind of, let's say, universal or near-universal human pastime. And the more you research it, it's actually quite an interesting um, subject because it has a history. 
It has cultural variations, and it's also completely bound up with the history of uh, literature as well. So I only, I mean, in, in a certain way, I only kind of touched the surface in, in, in the, as far as the research, as far as my research was able to go. But as just a small anecdote, I can say when I was presenting, so when I was first working on this some years ago, um, it was quite interesting to see how different audiences reacted. And I can say probably the most enthusiastic response I, I got to um, kind of an early presentation of uh, this critique of complaint was in uh, Portugal, in Lisbon. Um, people really stayed for hours, hours. I had to answer questions. And they really tried to convince me that indeed it was the Portuguese and not the Jews who were the real masters of uh, complaining. And of course, you have a, a very kind of sublime complaint in the Portuguese culture, and that's the art of the fado, for instance. So, okay. So, I want to take uh, complaining seriously as a, as a philosophical problem. And again, I, uh, my question is not a moralistic one. That's the other problem. If, if people do discuss complaint, it's in a very moralistic way. So they will say something like this. Um, don't complain too much in life. Um, you know, only complain when something is really important. Make sure your complaints are like socially productive um, protests and not sort of mere whinging or whatnot. And that doesn't interest me in the least. I, I'm more interested in understanding what the phenomena of complaining can tell us about the human condition and the nature of human desire. So I'm not interested in this kind of moralistic discourse. And in fact, in some respects, I kind of want to defend complaining, or at least the dignity of it, that it's an interesting object of inquiry. Third, so the third, my, my third um, aspect of my interest in complaining is I think it's a new way, sort of, for me at least, it was a fresh way to speak about negativity and to enter into that philosophical problem of negativity. And also to um, try to characterize. So it's kind of the introduction, the preface of the book. It's a way into that problem, that difficult dialogue between Lacan and Deleuze. And I was quite um, interested, so I discovered this sort of early on, that in Deleuze's, uh, you know, these ABCs, the abecedaire, so these... Um, this videotaped interview where he sort of expounds on different topics um, going through the alphabet. When he comes to J for joy, um, his main example of joy is complaining. And I think that's wonderful because it really cuts against the, also the cliched image we have of Deleuze as kind of philosopher of sort of affirmation, affirmative affects and so forth. That He actually, um, when he talks about joy, he actually talks about the, the complaint. And even Parnay, so he's uh, Claire Parnay, so he's the interlocutor, is a little surprised by this. So she says like, well... If you've, you know, if you've avoided these negative as uh, affects, um, guilt, the problematics of guilt and death, if you've tried to liberate desire from lack, um, and especially in his later work, if you've tried to distance yourself from psychoanalysis, why do you um, value, you know, why do you put so much emphasis on complaining? And Deleuze's answer is, is very good. I mean, he says, basically he says, listen, you will understand nothing of poetry and poetic creation outside of complaining. That the main motor for poetic creation has in fact been um, somehow the lament. And here you see that also I intend complaining in a very broad sense. So of course it can mean anything from everyday uh, okay, whining, uh, grumbling, but it can also mean you know, protest, uh, political protest, it can, and it would also encompass expressions of melancholia, of elegy, and so forth. So it's a very capacious um, um, category. So my question was, so the, the, my, my fundamental question in that preface, so my analysis of complaint was, could we identify a kind of pure form of complaining? Could we identify what the highest or the ultimate complaint would be? Is there a complaint 
such that all other complaints would somehow be fragments of that complaint or species of that complaint. You know, to put it in kind of Deleuzian language, uh, is there a pure and empty form of complaining? And I, I think um, the answer is yes. And I think there's even two, two good candidates for that. And, uh, and this also illustrates, I think, the theoretical, what's at stake in that kind of theoretical debate between uh, Lacan and Deleuze. So um, for Lacan, the pure complaint is the one that's enunciated in, uh, by Sophocles, so in uh, Oedipus at Colonus, so the play that comes after uh, Oedipus Rex. So, uh, and the chorus at one point explains, sort of expresses um, the misery of Oedipus, kind of summarizes, you could even say, sort of Greek tragic wisdom. And there's this phrase, it would be better never to be born. Okay. So never to be born, this kind of negation of, of nature itself. And Immediately what's interesting in that complaint, it's not exactly a formula for suicide. It's not, it would be better to kill yourself. It's not about suicide, that there's actually something impossible in the complaint. And that's what's in, it's not just about negation, but it's a kind of impossible negation. It calls for an impossible negativity. As if one could go back in time and kind of erase one's own existence. You could even say there's a kind of critique of suicide um, in, this, in this complaint. Because, of course, you can kill yourself. So you can stop the continued harm of living. But you can't go back in time somehow and erase having emerged into being. So that what makes that complaint so poignant, uh, so powerful, uh, is the fact that there is no remedy. So it actually demands something um, impossible. Now... Um, there's a kind of Freud joke, or Freud recounts a sort of joke about um, this line in his uh, book on the um, jokes and their relation to the unconscious. Um, and I believe there's, it's also kind of a Yiddish joke, or there's a Yiddish re- variation of it, excuse me. And um, so Freud says this. Uh, it would be better never to be born, yes, but unfortunately that only happens once every 100,000 times. Okay, <laughs> so that's the joke. And, I think what's, what's delightful about this joke is, you know, what's funny about it, or the pleasure it, it provides, is it, it's actually a pleasure of uh, making the situation even worse. And uh, I, 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 I think here you could even say, so in a kind of grandiose way, that you have a kind of meeting here of Athens and Jerusalem, this kind of Greek wisdom that it would be better never to be born, and this kind of Jewish twist, ah, but that rarely happens. <laughs> Which, which, which sounds, which gives a certain way of coping with that, but actually makes the situation sort of worse. It sort of digs the knife in even, even um, further. Now, Freud's reading of this joke, I think, misfires, actually. He, he talks about it in terms of the kind of technique of nonsense or absurdity, that what the kind of punchline does is it shows the absurdity of the original line, and it's actually sort of poking fun at supposed philosophical wisdom. So the joke is actually about deflating um, the philosophical wisdom. But I think, you know, more profoundly, more radically, I think why this joke resonates or this line resonates is there's something just true about it. And I think that's a good way into this Lacanian problematic of the death drive, that actually that's right. In some ways, the subject is not born. The subject wasn't born. And that somehow that is the very foundation, the very reason why there's a kind of splitting in life where there is an unconscious because the subject never actually fully is inserted into the world or fully belongs to the symbolic order. That you could say uh, a kind of um, twist on Heidegger that I developed throughout the book, instead of saying we're thrown into being, it would be more accurate to say we're thrown out of being. And the, and the subject is nothing other than that instance 
which does not belong in being the symbolic order, the cultural universe, that it's thrown out. And, and Lacan's way of describing that is to say the subject is dead, is already dead. If the subject could actually speak in its own words, as he says at some point, it would actually say, I'm dead. This kind of impos- impossible sort of self-consciousness. Um, I also developed that, I'll leave that aside, but in this idea, this strange Lacanian idea somehow that death is not what comes at the end of life. So it's not this kind of existentialist discourse that, okay, we're all going to die, this problematic of finitude, but that somehow Lacan also reverses this and suggests that death comes first, that we're already dead. And if you want, I think this is the Lacanian answer to um, theology, that we are living in the afterlife. This is the afterlife. Uh, It's heaven, it's hell, I have no idea. You can choose. But somehow, this life is already lived in the shadow of some kind of fundamental rupture, some kind of fundamental failure of the subject to enter into existence. Um, Another way of putting this, so another, this this entails a number of kind of paradoxes. Another way of doing this, and this is, uh, is kind of this is a kind of idea that I explore that I uh, throughout the book, but I kind of announce this idea in the preface and then try to look at it in different ways. But I think we could say that the human being, um, in this Lacanian, Freudian Lacanian perspective, is that sick animal that doesn't live its life um, against natural evidence. Like we would think, okay, I'm alive. I have this kind of internal feeling of my life, a kind of self-affection and so forth. That somehow against that kind of natural evidence, the human being doesn't live its life, but it lives its failure not to be born, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And that human life should be de- defined not in terms of a positive or direct sort of affirmation of existence, but in this kind of um, obscure sort of twisted double negation. That it actually doesn't live its life, but it lives its failure not to be born. Failing not to be born is, in fact, the mode in which the subject okay, is somehow inserted into the world in the way that it never fully, let's say, finds its place there. All right. Um, the other aspect, so the other candidate, I think, for the ultimate complaints is never being born um, would be the Deleuzean take. Um, Deleuze would say, every time you're complaining, basically, you're saying this. This is too much for me. It's just too much for me. So anytime you're complaining, you're basically saying it's too much. In other words, complaint bears witness to some kind of force or forces that overwhelm the the self-control, that that take over from the ego and destroy its uh, mastery. Uh, so that complaining always bears witness to sort of overwhelming, uncontrollable uh, powers, powers beyond um, the beyond the usual remit of of the self or of the ego, and that. Deleuze then would, would make, a, uh, make a distinction between common complaints and what he calls the great complaints, so la grande plainte, the great complaint. And you could say common complaints, the everyday um, variety of complaining, is actually a kind of coping mechanism. So even you could say in a situation that's become a little bit unhinged, you know, even saying something like, oh, this is too much, can actually uh, allow you to regain your balance. And I would even go so far as to say that the ego always needs to be slightly off balance. If things are going too right, you also should reinsert some kind of complaint just to make sure that there's a little wiggle room, as it were, that there's a little bit of lack there you can play with. So complaining, for the most part, acts as a coping mechanism, but that's not what interests Deleuze. He's interested in this great complaint, and the great complaint is, is interestingly enough, is not a complaint that's really directed at another person, or it's not really interested in uh, an interlocutor. It's not interested in recognition. But a great complaint is a kind of song. It's a way of 
transforming these overwhelming forces into some kind of song, you could say, some kind of uh, expression, to give expression precisely to that moment in which one is overwhelmed without reasserting one's self-control, as if those forces themselves would develop some kind of new expression. So the great complaint is... Uh, a kind of song, I think, is, is a kind of song, a poem, uh, an expression of these overwhelming forces, and it always touches on something unconsolable. And that's also what's interesting in this Deleuzian. Again, it's not about making things better. It's not about compensation. Uh, it's really about the expression of something solitary and unconsolable. And I think one of the aspects that I really develop in the book is that Deleuze should be read despite, okay, again, a kind of cliched reception as a philosopher of becoming difference and pluralism and so forth. I mean, of course, there's truth to that. But the Deleuze, I think, more profoundly is really a philosopher of solitude. Okay. That brings me, okay, to the, another, uh, stop me if, I, if I'm simply going on too long. Another five, another five <laughs> ten minutes? Okay. Um, then... Um, Okay, now, now we come to the kind of more theoretical problem. So that relationship between Deleuze and Lacan, and how do I, how do I um, approach that? And, you know, this also raises a question, I just throw this out as a kind of open question, especially um, practitioners of the discipline. I mean, in, in, to some extent, the, the book is written in that classic genre of compare and contrast. Everybody knows this genre. Um, it's kind of a hallowed sort of form in our field. So comparing and contrasting sort of two thinkers. And and um, I try to do something with that. Um, I try to do something um, to... to um, I try to transform that in some way. Um, I do that by trying to make, make things as difficult. So part of my process in working on this book was to make things as difficult as I could for myself. So at the beginning, I don't necessarily let's say, choose sides. I mean, from the beginning, my interest is actually trying to discern, trying to isolate what I think the real core of the problem is, the theoretical core. And I think even though there's very obvious battle lines that can be drawn between the two thinkers, I largely ignore those. And in the end, I came to the conclusion that um, I think the real debate between Lacan and Deleuze has to do with an kind of internal debate about the meaning of negativity. So I read Deleuze against the grain as a philosopher of negativity. So to put my cards on the table. But I think he wants, to, he wants to think negativity differently. So I put emphasis on all these kind of negative figures um, in Deleuze's thought. So I want to, from the beginning, challenge this kind of cliched reception. Again, Deleuze's great philosophical combat is always against cliché. So in this sense, I'm faithful to kind of Deleuzean inspiration. But this kind of cliched um, um, reception of Deleuze and Lacan, as on the one hand, Deleuze would be the philosopher of affirmation, of becoming, of difference, of creation, and so forth. Lacan is the philosopher of lack, of castration, the law, of the impossible, and so forth. And I want to do something different with that and to try to show how Deleuzean philosophy can actually force, so from a, force the Lacanian, or from the Lacanian perspective, to really explicitate, um, to make more clear what is at stake, what they mean by lack, uh, what is meant by um, the negative, and then show how Deleuze is also trying to reinvent negativity in another way. So he thinks that that tradition has become so polluted, um, has become so kind of stale for thinking, that he actually uses okay completely new vocabulary. But I still think um, it's a philosopher in a way of negativity, of a kind of um, violence, of a kind of psychic um, violence. So, for example, I think that a very productive way of reading anti-Oedipus today, 
um, if one okay, wants to engage with this book. I think a kind of more productive, um, and more um, stimulating way of reading this book is to say, you know, this book is not about a celebration of desire. It's not about a kind of affirmation of the creative powers of the body or the kind of plasticities and flows of life. But what they're doing is kind of articulating a meta-complaint about psychoanalysis, that the problem with psychoanalysis is that it's also kind of turned all of our problems into a certain vocabulary, certain cliched vocabulary of complaints. So it's always complaining about, okay, my desire is never satisfied. There's always a problem with the parents and the laws repressing me. And I think the Luz and Guattari's response is to say, hey, aren't there more interesting and more troubling things to complain about? I think that's a kind of more productive way of looking at the book. It's not a kind of celebration of desire um, against the kind of, let's say, repressive apparatus. But I think really what they're trying to do is suggest that there's actually even more painful and more interesting problems we should be talking about and not always talking about the father, the repressive law, and so forth. Now, I also think they have a kind of wrong-headed or simple, very simplified version of psychoanalysis. But I think that, if you rephrase the, the problem of anti-Oedipus in those terms, for me it becomes a very interesting book again. Um, another way of approaching this problem, so of course I'm not, uh, not all of my arguments, but another, okay, another kind of interesting um, consequence, I think, of the comparison of the two thinkers is if we go back to this problem of lack, um, and this idea that lack, so the, the, the concept of lack that Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari attack is precisely this idea that, la- that desire is always unsatisfied, that its object is transcending it, that it's always out there, I can never reach it. And um, I think that a mistaken reading of this, it's not that they think that lack is a completely wrong conception of desire. They simply, they say though that it only applies to a certain class of people, neurotics, that it is the correct description of a neurotic desire, but you shouldn't universalize it. I, I could go off on a side tangent, but in certain respects, Deleuze, Deleuze, and Guattari are, are much less radical critics of psychoanalysis than Foucault, who Foucault wants to give up the entire conception of repression and so forth. Deleuze and Guattari actually retain most of the psychoanalytic concepts, actually, but they, they have a kind of um, variation, let's say. But, so they criticize the notion of lack, and saying this only applies to neurosis. And beneath the lack, the lack is actually a kind of creation. You also have to see lack as a positive creation of what? Of partial drives. So their real problem is a problem of embodiment, and embodiment being torn between different vectors of partial drives and what they call, okay, body without organs. Uh, For them, what I think is quite interesting, again, to summarize what I think the real force of their criticism is, and I think this is an interesting idea to to reflect on, that they would say, if you want the, the... the, the main figure, let's say the main example, the, the idea of what, it, what desire means, um, desire sh- is not about getting what you want, for example. I get what I want and therefore okay, I, have some, I have some pleasure. Or I never get what I want and I, okay, I'm always longing for something. And the, but they say the, the real figure of desire is surprise. Um, you know that there's a desire in the situation when there's a kind of affect of surprise or shock. So the, the real sign of desire is, is not, okay, is not, okay, I got what I want, but, oh, I had no idea I was capable of that. So something new occurs, some kind of new connection, you could say. So that, that motif of surprise then becomes the, or of, of some kind of shock or some kind of disconcerting moment becomes the real harbinger, the real sign that there's desire at play. So you could say that for Deleuze, um, des- desire should be defined as a kind of crisis, actually. And for them, it's a real crisis of embodiment. Desire always recalls you to the fact that the body is not a natural given, that embodiment is a problem, it's, and that it's a real achievement. 
achievement and an accomplishment. And then the question then, if desire is a crisis, the question is always, which forces are going to be able to exploit that crisis? What are we going to build from out of that crisis? And unfortunately, as we know in the contemporary history, we see that um, it's usually forces of reaction that are much more creative, much more inventive at exploiting crises. Um, but the crisis is a kind of opening. So desire for them is a kind of open moment. Um, again, um, when they say that desire is revolutionary in their essence, I don't think that's what they're saying. Um, I think they have a slightly more nuanced idea that, that desire is not revolutionary per se, but that it's a kind of crisis. It opens up the possibility for something new developing. But it also, of course, could be um, reclaimed by reactionary forces, for example, of the body or the retrenchment of the ego, for instance. Um, now, what can we say from a Lacanian standpoint? I think Deleuze and Guattari do not have the correct um, understanding of Lacan on this issue, that lack, and to put this very simply, but lack doesn't mean that object that I'm missing out over there. What lack means for Lacan more profoundly is that I lack the very coordinates, the very place from which I could desire. I lack any kind of rules, or I lack guidelines or schema that would let, actually let me desire in the first place. So Lacan, I think, in a very radical way, does not presume, you could say, doesn't presume um, the existence of desire. The desire is something that has to come into being, and that is the real function of fantasy. This is actually a theme that um, Savoy has worked on quite, uh, quite extensively, and, and um, one of the um, discussions that was um, inspirational for me is in um, the book on the plague of fantasies. This idea that the, the real purpose of fantasy is not to picture, to represent what it is you want, but actually provides the very ground for desire. And this is the conception of lack that is missed okay, in the critique of lack coming from Deleuze. Again, what's lacking is not the object that would fulfill me. What's lacking is the very ground from which I could desire. And maybe I can... I, I have one... Uh, okay, two, two last comments. <laughs> the, one, I would say that this will sound very abstract, but I'll leave it in a kind of abstract way. Then I think the real, so, so then we see the real core of this um, theoretical dispute. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, this impossibility, so this, this starting, this kind of negative, empty starting point of not even knowing how to desire, how do I enter into a culture of desire, for example, has to be inscribed in the psyche in one way or the other. It has to be represented in the unconscious. Not represented in the sense we usually think about it, or that sense of representation criticized by Deleuze. Not representation in terms of like a map represents the territory, or not representation in terms of resemblance, but there has to be a representative of it, something that stands in for that lack, which continues to resonate. Mm. Um, one way I describe that is in the unconscious, the fundamental operation of the unconscious is the subject either has to exclude itself in or include itself out. That somehow that dead subject or that failure resonates within the unconscious is actually the kind of core of the unconscious and that it's represented there or it finds a representative there in terms of fantasy. And that's where the, 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 the notion of the body comes into psychoanalysis, that it's represented there by a part of the body or some kind of bodily scenario. So that's the kind of function negativity in Lacanian psychoanalysis. And I think Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari consistently, so throughout his philosophical career, has different figures of the negative, whether it's the fractured eye and difference in repetition, or the crack of the surface, for example, in logic of sense, or the, even the body without organs. But that this kind of negativity, so instead of, being, instead of finding its representative somewhere, is directly involved in 
the movements, the motion, the dynamism of the drives and becomes the very principle for the kind of unique plasticity, again, dynamism, energy of the partial drives. And this really accounts for, I think, the distinction. But I'll, I'll leave that for now. You, if you're more interested in that, you can ask me. But that's a re- relatively abstract um, claim. But I think, and this, this is my last point, I think where this gets cashed out or you can really see what's at stake, then is the other thing I'm interested in is a philosophy of psychopathology. So the problem of um, what the study of psychopathology can sort of let's, let me put it in a very kind of broad way what the psychopath, what the study of psychopathology can teach us about the um, human condition and I also raise the question and I don't really answer that um, it's a, a difficult question let's say um, for myself but I raise that problem of the relationship between philosophy and psychoanalysis and why is a philosopher so I'm not a clinician um, why is a philosopher I'm interested in psychoanalysis and what is the relationship between these two um, fields and aren't they a kind of odd odd couple and um, it's also a question to myself because so much of my work is somehow about that intersection so why is that so why, why is that so compelling and I really do think that's one of the most compelling conjunctures in uh, 20th century 21st century thought um, that odd meeting between philosophy and psychoanalysis. And let me say, I think broadly speaking, there's three ways of parsing that. I mean, you could say, are, are philosophy and psychoanalysis, are they allies? So would they be sort of allies in a joint project of thinking, you know, a subject that wouldn't be master in its own house? Okay, um, fair enough. Are they sort of rivals? Sometimes they're really rivals or enemies. So the philosophers will sort of expose the hidden metaphysics of psychoanalysis or, or psychoanalysts will be able to understand, you know, the kind of hidden desires in philosophical discourse. Okay, so um, are they are they kind of um, strangers? Are they simply indifferent to each other? So do they have their own procedures and concerns? They they meet, but they fundamentally remain separate. And what I think is funny is that Deleuze sort of recapitulates all three of these options in his career. So does Michel Foucault. So at one point he's kind of allied with psychoanalysis, then he's kind of harsh critic, and he sort of ends um, with a kind of indifference. And, you know, isn't this also the sort of normal course of romantic relationships? You know, there's love, there's hatred. Of course, then there's kind of the most cruel thing, of course, um, um, indifference. Um, I think you can also ask um, from the perspective of psychoanalysis, so not only how does philosophy relate to psychoanalysis, but how does psychoanalysis relate to philosophy or to other fields? And there I think, um, I'll just mention this, but there I think what a very interesting phenomena is, and that's the unique, maybe the uniqueness of psychoanalysis. But you know that psychoanalysis, from the very beginning, from Freud, is incredibly promiscuous um, discourse. Mm. So psychoanalysis is interested in everything. Um, so not only about clinical problems per se, but but in um, arts, you know, in, in literature and in cinema, in uh, it's interested in law, in sociology, it's interested in neurology, psychology, philosophy. It really has its hands in sort of all all. Um, Pops, as if it needed this kind of external engagement in order to remain relevant and in order also to enrich itself, its own reflection. If it wasn't, if it simply collapsed in on a kind of reflection on the clinic, psychoanalysis would somehow um, also die. So it needs that external engagement. At the same time, um, it refuses to really ally itself with any of those fields or it refuses to be absorbed in any of those fields. Um, to use the term from Deleuze and Guattari, psychoanalysis remains a kind of celibate machine or it remains a kind of bachelor machine. It doesn't want to get married with any other field. And it even acts in a kind of oddly aloof way. So at a certain moment, it just becomes indifferent. It doesn't matter what those other fields say because it has its own kind of internal consistency. And what I think what's interesting about this is that psychoanalysis in its very relationship to external sciences seems to imitate 
um, the very singularities which itself treats or which it itself ministers to, what Lacan called the objet A. In, a, in an interesting way, psychoanalysis itself seems to conceive of itself as the kind of partial object, the objet A, of the other sciences. That it's somehow related to everything. It's deeply... Um, uh, bound up with the very constitution of reality, so that it's deeply bound up with all these other fields and, and couldn't exist without them. But at the same time, it's kind of the remainder of those fields, what they can't quite um, deal with. So it remains its own um, discipline. So another way of posing this problem, and I think a simpler way, so put aside this this vexing problem of the relationship between philosophy and psycho, uh, psychoanalysis, is to say they have a kind of joint interest, and that's um, this. What can the study of psychopathology tr- uh, teach us about the human condition? And here, what I want to develop, and that's what I think is absolutely contemporary and necessary today, is that I, I wind to a conclusion now. No, no, um, uh, what I think is so is really continues to be a living, actual problem um, is Freud's radical critique of uh, normality and normalization. Uh, that for Freud, so different pathologies, um, hysteria, obsessional neurosis, uh, perversions, and uh, psychosis, that's also very interesting in psychoanalysis that it has such a restricted um, diagnostic schema um, compared to contemporary psychiatry, which literally has hundreds of categories. That the psychoanalysis has a fairly restricted um, um, diagnostic scheme. And the reason for that is that each of these um, illnesses is not really a mental illness per se, but more profoundly, they really express um, ways of being human. So that each of these kind of pathological types is actually a form of subjectivity, a fully sort of um, accomplished, if you want, um, um, subjectivity or a way of being human. So that, you know, the idea of a norm of a normal human being is actually swallowed by pathology or the study of, you could say as a general the study of the kind of different distortions itself constitutes the phenomena or the thing in itself, that there is no um, norm. Um, Lacan has a very nice line about this in his uh, ninth seminar where he's, he's, he reports, so he tells his um, audience, you know, people are always asking me, why don't you talk about normal desire? You know, why don't you talk about normal desire for a change? And Lacan replies, well, listen, I'm always talking about normal desire. There's even three types, neurotic, perverse, and psychotic. So that these different, these types actually reflect the different facets of the normal structure of desire. And that they refer, that the psychopathologies in this sense don't refer to accidental damage. So they don't refer to a kind of developmental narrative or kind of developmental scheme where you become sick um, because of some kind of problem, conflict, accidental crisis that you confront along the way and knocks you off the path of development, knocks you off the path of your, let's say, of a kind of natural or normal desire. Um, but that psychopathologies refer to crises, um, problems, okay, conflicts that are shared by all um, human beings, that are universal. And depending on how these problems get composed in an individual life, um, your subjectivity will express itself in one structure or another. But that these problems would be universally shared. And what are these problems? Of course, this would be a much longer lecture, but very simply, they refer to um, embodiment. So how do I locate myself in the, my body? How do I know what the limits of my body are? Where does my body end and the body of the world begin? Um, how do I close myself off from the world, for instance? So how do I constitute myself as a singular entity? So the problem of the real body. Um, the problem of sexuality. Am I, am I a man or am I a woman? Uh, how do I deal with the drives that, that demand so much and put pressure on my body? 
problems of sexuality. And then you could say also the problem of the desire of the other. Um, what does the other want from me? What am I for the other? Um, what is my relationship to the law? How do I enter into the culture? That these are kind of universal problems that have no um, solution. They have no good solution in a sense, but they can be articulated in all sorts of interesting ways. So that problem of what I would call kind of pathoanalysis of subjectivity, what I think is so interesting about now, coming back, why I would choose to, to write a book about Deleuze and Lacan, is I think both are inspired by the same project, but they approach it in different ways. And you see that it's actually easier, so it's easier for me to say it than to actually do it. It's easy for me to say, well, there's no such thing as normality. But it's something else to work that out in a kind of um, rigorous, theoretically satisfying way to understand all the implications of that idea, um, that there's no sort of norm of human development. And even in Freud, so at the beginning, there's a kind of conflict, because you can see that certain aspects of Freudian thought seem to lend themselves more to a kind of normative developmental schema. And that's what that whole critique of the Oedipus complex is about in the 70s. Doesn't psychoanalysis, even in spite of itself, end up um, recreating, recapitulating a certain normative psychology, even when it says it doesn't? So that the critique coming from Zulus and Guattari and anti-Oedipus actually is an attempt to kind of um, reactualize that, that kind of um, radical base of Freud, that critique of normality. Now, whether it succeeds, that's another question. But Lacan also pursues this project, and ultimately the debate between them will be different ways of understanding that thesis, um, that there's no norm in human life, in human psychic life. Um, maybe that's a nice point to end on, and then... Uh, and we could, we could speak a bit more about um, the problems, the implications of that idea of the critique of normality. But that, anyway, that's just meant to give you a general idea, let's say, of the, what I was trying to do in the book and some of the main sort of um, uh, areas of uh, discussion and argument. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. That was really compelling. Yeah. I can't believe anyone would not read the book now. I want to read right. it. But... Um, <laughs> And I've got lots of questions which mm. I'll save for later, but I did want to comment on one thing that you mentioned because mm. uh, um, in the competition between uh, the Portuguese and the Jewish as to who complains best, I wonder is there a Jewish version of Pessoa? Because in that book, and I thought it's so Lacanian, and I was thinking when you um, you mentioned we, for Lacan we haven't even been born yet, we haven't fully mentioned the symbolic order, so we're already born dead. And he describes himself as an abortion that survived. And for me, right. that so right. sums up the death drive. And right. we're, an abortion, we're all abortions that survived. Yeah, so, you know, if I can just, just very quickly, I mean, just two comments. I mean, there's a line from Pessoa I like very much that um, I also quote in the book and discuss that there can be a kind of problem with a, with a let's say, pessimistic view of life when you say, oh, life is terrible, life is horrible, it's not worth living. I don't know what you say something like that. Um, I think Pessoa has a very refined expression for this. The problem is if I say life is terrible, you could say that um, it actually is a way of guarding my ego because mm -hmm. it's as if I abstract myself. Life is terrible out there, and I also have the kind of um, you know the arrogance I can pronounce on that. So it actually can be seen as a kind of defense of the ego. This kind of and Pessoa then I think has a more refined formula. He says I don't think life is terrible. I think my life is terrible. Mm -hmm. um, so in the guise of this kind of modesty, you see that there's actually an even worse. I think. Yes. And no. then. Um, the line you mentioned, for me, the, maybe the ultimate um, author of this idea exactly. that somehow um, life is um, not directly lived, but, but I think the formula for, let's say, a non-vitalistic philosophy of life would be, um, you know, the, you live your failure not to be born, is a Soviet-era writer that I love very much, uh, Daniel Harms. And I think Harms has some of the most... Um, 
uh, brilliant sort of formulations of this. But, yeah, okay. I have to read. Meanwhile, Gigi has been making lots of notes. Oh, on, uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm too tired to say so, anything great. I'll just try to make some confused remarks. First, about that plan. normality and so on. You know, it's an easy... I disagree even with Lacan here that you hmm. quoted. Because if you say, okay, three types of normality... Okay, for me, it's the same problem as with some versions of transgenderism. They cheat. Because their idea is we have an old norm, masculine-feminine, and now we want a new norm. Everything is normal. No, I mean, I think they cheat in what sense? Uh, It's in the same way that, uh, like, I notice when I have a debate with homosexuals or whomever, that uh, although, like... What do they want? They want they, their complaint alive. They, they complain that they are not normalized, but secretly, the most horrible thing they can experience for them is that you simply say, and that's how I usually treat them, fuck off, I totally admit you, you are nothing special. Right. And this is horrible to tell to them. They want to be normalized subversives. Mm-hmm. That's why I think that we cannot dismiss norms as such. Sorry to tell you, I believe in norms. And it's interesting to read how, for example, a lot of this... Uh, for example, let's take Judith Butler. I think there is an absolutely clear, even brutally uh, violent normative dimension in her work. You know where you find it? Mm. When you read her theory of uh, melancholy complaint and so on. Her idea is this one, that uh, incidentally I think it's wrong in a Freudian way. She reads in a too direct way Freud's statement that we become what we are through identifying by the lost object. Mm. So the idea is our first object of desire is for the small girl mother, for the small boy father, and then uh, normal subjects, heterosexually normal, uh, do, do the proper work of mourning by identifying with the lost object. So a, a boy having to renounce father as the object becomes a man and vice versa. Her idea is, you find it very clearly in what I argue is her best book, maybe, Psychic Life of Power. Her idea is that somehow, although she would probably have denied it, but the idea is that that uh, lesbians are gay um, are somehow more ethical. They don't betray the primordial object. They remain faithful to it. You have a normativity there. It's absolutely clear that for her, being gay is somehow not making a crucial compromise. Right. While I violently disagree with this. First, I think it brutally contradicts her theory of uh, sexual difference, which is that it is only enacted performatively afterwards. Wait a minute. What we get here is, before going through that process of performative uh, enactment of differences, as if sexual difference is already there from the very beginning. How come? Where does that basic sexual difference before you became man by being constructed and so on and so on? So what I'm tempted to tell is that A, normativity is much more forceful and B, especially in our permissive transgender transgender and so on. I cannot even imagine a more normative attitude than than transgenderism, if you ask me. In, In a way... 
in a way, it's the same game that we heterosexuals, in a very subtle way, really reproducing, you know, I, I'm the first to admit that we so-called straight uh, heterosexuals have, we are often also absolutely hypocritical. We have these subtle ways of, you know, you admit the equality of, uh, in principle, but in a subtle way you dismiss them. But I'm saying they are doing it in, even in a more subtle way. Okay, but that's, I don't want to get lost here. Let me go on very quickly. Sorry, not to speak for uh, too long. Uh, first, uh, uh, I, I have so many things to say. I don't have time to go. What you said about complain and so on. Mm. From uh, very, uh, at the very concrete level, for example, what you said about complain and so on. I mean, coming from an ex-communist country, I can tell you that was maybe the greatest political genius of really mm -hmm. existing socialism in the last decades. It, when you, mm. you know, people complained all the time, my God, you don't get proper, mm -hmm. you don't get enough coke in the store, you don't get toilet paper, you don't get blah, blah, blah. But this was their life, this was their satisfaction. Yes, yes. And the regime was ingenious, it knew it all the time. This is why this was the authentic horror of democracy where people, they were stupid enough to believe at the beginning in democracy, so it took them some time, but really only a couple of months, to realize that with so-called democracy, they lost the right to complain. Because, you know, then, mm. even if you had... Uh, uh, They're like, deprived of their precious object. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yes. I remember when we had the first conservative mm. uh, elected uh, government in Slovenia, and in a quite ingenious way, I admire them, where people continue to explain, basically they told the people, fuck off, it's no longer uh, communism, you have chosen us, you have no right to complain. Right. It's over. So This is a very violent gesture when somebody tries to deprive you of your uh, rights to complain. I think it's always extremely violent. Yeah, but in moment. this sense, do you think that a psychoanalysis also is in a more subtle way very violent? Because basically it does something even more uh, unpleasant, which is it lets you know that, okay, just enjoy your complaint, you know, like mm. it f compels you to admit that you are really enjoying. Mm. But what I'm saying is that also at a very personal level, let me tell you, maybe this will interest you, I had the same experience with my mother when uh, I had a small son with my wife. We were, of course, exploiting her. That's the only reason for grandparents to exist. And she, of course, secretly loved it. How did she articulate her love? By complaining all the time. Yes, I know, I have another weekend ruined. I will have to have your boy and so on and so on. <laughs> then I did the most vicious thing imaginable. I stopped giving her the boy and ignored her. And she was desperate. What should I do now? Like, she yes, was yes. deprived of her complaint, and it was, and up to the more <laughs> sublime topic, mm -hmm. I totally agree with you, complain high art. What is the entire history of the opera, but Aria is yes. a complaint. It begins with Orpheus complaining, and so on, and so on. It's all, it ends the last great opera, like Wagner's Parsifal. Mm -hmm. The two great Arias, the Fisher King and Fortas, it's Klage, complain. The true. Okay, but let yeah, me. If I was to go further, indeed, yeah, I yeah. would 
you could have a whole section of, I don't talk about opera but I have other examples yeah. that would be wonderful I mean the history of opera is a complaint I thought about that but okay. mm. yeah that's a very that would also be a very interesting avenue into this problem of complaining this would okay. be nice to do mm. this type of uh, you know what I would love to do a topic which would be a really universal philosophical topic but covered up as a very special like what don't, why don't we do a great colloquium you know that like uh, the logic of complaint in early Monteverdi operas, you know, like it means it may appear as a tiny specific problem, but really it's about everything imaginable. Yeah, but let me go on. Sorry, sorry, don't do that. Uh, uh, next <laughs> point. Uh, 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 one aspect of mm. your work here and also in your other text that you forgot, I think you mm. have it somewhere here, but I don't think it's in the foreground. Mm-hmm. It's this excellent way, which is for me absolutely crucial, that you develop a kind of a negative, comical Hegelian negation of negation. Mm -hmm. As you put it, you have, you try to negate suicide, but you fail even in that. Mm -hmm. So you have a kind of, not, no longer this noble immortality, but a kind of obscene immortality. We are immortal, not because we have an immortal soul or whatever, but because we fail even to properly kill ourselves. Where do you have that? Is it here still? Well, that's, yes. I mean, that's also the idea. I mean, in some respects, I think that's what Perros is saying. Like, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to, um, we're doing our best to be unhappy, but we even manage to fail at that. So it's a kind of failure that's even sort of worse. So that idea of, um, you could say, pessimism is never fully successful yeah, in that yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sort yeah. of develop, I try to develop a philosophy of pessimism and optimism. And I also, I have to say, for many years, I just thought those were stupid notions, actually kind of sub-philosophical, that you should be directed towards truth and pessimism and optimism are just worldviews. Mm. But then I started thinking about it more. And I think what's interesting in pessimism is that it. Can't, if, if it was really pessimistic, it would somehow disappear into itself and it would simply vanish, I mean, in a certain sense. But it somehow doesn't vanish. It's a kind of negativity that somehow exists, a kind of nothing that continues nevertheless to exist. That there's something that refuses to sort of disappear into the nothingness of pessimism. Yeah, and, and I think and, that's a good way of like understanding life in a, in a, in a yeah, different yeah. way, in a kind of... No, but I also imagine detailed mm. scenes, like for me, the ultimate scene is always, you know, you are in front of a military court, a great hero, you know, mm-hmm. and you want to do some heroic gesture, like you tore your shirt, rather shoot me then. And then something gets stuck and you have to say, oh, sorry, one button. Exactly. Yeah. I just have to <laughs> unbutton yeah. myself properly yeah. so that I can then repeat the big gesture and so on, you know. Sorry, but let me go on. Right. So now I will add... It undermines this kind of hero. I mean, part of yeah. the argument I think undermines, I mean, so... It could be read in an extremely... Yeah, I mean it in a sort of comical sense. I think it undermines the heroism of suicide. In yes, a certain yeah, sense. Yeah. This, idea of this, yeah. this idea of failing not to be born is actually yeah, meant yeah, as a kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. That optimism weirdly reemerges in a buffoonish you, way. Osborne, your hmm. remark that I think that the greatest luck is not to be born. I mean, we should appropriate this. This is the greatest pro-abortion statement, I think, or pro-abortion propaganda should use this. Okay, but now I come to two slightly trickier questions and then uh, 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 final remarks that I don't talk too much. First, you know, apart from obvious minor points, now I'm talking as a nonetheless more Lacanian than Deleuzean. Okay, this is not a big reproach and you know it. This is just 
what makes for me the less suspicious. What I will never pardon him mm. is from early 60s a text celebrating Jung. You know, this is something kept in secret even by the lesbians themselves. It was proven by my friends that when they put together some article, they never, they try to avoid reprinting it. In early 60s, the has a crazy text where he, okay, where he totally celebrates Jung. Okay, but let's avoid that. That's not crucial. This was a blow below the belt. Now, no, no, sec- I can, sec- I can re- I'll say something about ah, Please, please. Uh, I mean, I mean, so, also, completely agreeing um, that Freudian psychoanalysis is, has nothing to do with a kind of Jungian mysticism. Nevertheless, yeah. there is something theoretically interesting in Jung. Sorry to say, but yeah. um, the original break between Freud and Jung yeah. was on an interesting point, and it wasn't on kind of New Age uh, mystical yeah, yeah. things. Mm-hmm. It was on clinical things. So, you know that Freud wanted Jung to develop his theory for psychotics. Yeah. Uh, because he didn't have immediate yeah, yeah. clinical experience. But they really, so they broke about psychosis and they also broke about sexuality and Jung putting pressure on Freud. And that was an interesting problem at the time. I'm not saying Jung was not right, but he put his finger on a certain weakness in Freud's theorizing Which to is- actually define what is sexuality. And so they really broke about that problem of what do you really mean by... And I think that's an interesting philosophical problem. Again, to be very clear, I'm not saying Jung has a better... You know, yeah. But I, th- I think at that moment... At that moment, I think he put his finger on the right thing. I mean, there was something interesting in the split. It wasn't purely about... It okay, wasn't purely about yeah. Mrs. Okay. Stuff, but it was yeah, really yeah, about yeah. the philosophical problem. What what do you mean by... what? How do you def- If sexuality is not just genitality, it's not yeah, just... Yeah. Re- then... What is it? How do, you, how do you define it? And you see that then it becomes interesting because Freud, it is a difficult question, Freud. What do you mean by sexuality? And that problem returns in psychoanalysis. I so, totally agree. But, okay. but I think Freud was there onto something that he didn't know. And yeah, that that's it. Lacan big it up. That's my point. That's uh, what I, but Jung put this, I just would say he yeah, put yeah. his finger on the problem and then he went off I in agree. this crazy direction. But nonetheless, I, yeah, but the, the conclusion of Jung to generalize libido is I yes, think it's a false there was escape, here yes. I remain uh, Freudian. First, for Freud and Alenka Zupanchev developed this very nicely, uh, uh, what psychoanalysis calls sexuality is, is not only not the same as organic biological sexuality, but it's only true let's call it symbolically human sexuality, sexuality itself in the sense of natural coupling has to get sexualized. What Lacan proposes is, if I may put it in this way, almost a Kantian, pure schematism of sexuality, which has more to do with purely formal features. What do I mean by this? Let me do something very vulgar, don't take it personally. Give me your hand. We are friends. Oh, do, we have, do we have to illustrate? No, yeah, illustrate. yeah. But okay. it's disgusting. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. What if instead of dropping your hand, I would now repeatedly start to squeeze it? Right. It would automatically get sexualized in a dirty way. I would have done nothing. I would just repeat it. And you would, have, you would, you would be totally justified in becoming furious. You know what I mean? So what well, I, if somebody was to like read the same paragraph of my yeah. book over and over again, like delighting in it, then or it would be sexual poetry, interest. Yeah. No, what I'm, no, now the crucial problem, so that I'm very sorry, we don't get lost here, is where I see, but maybe I'm wrong here. Uh, maybe I'm, of course, now identifying a very simplified version of Deleuze, but there is mm. a popular theory which goes like this. Originally, <laughs> what later becomes normative sexuality is just 
the plurality of the plurality of partial drives, and then in a secondary violent edipalization, right. this sex, this gets then squeezed into the normative straight jacket or two positions, and so on and so on. I, as a Freudian, I don't buy this. I think right. that uh, this. Uh, 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 plurality of partial drives is not primordial. There already has to be something that you would have called death drive. Yeah. It's already an effect of some more radical negativity. Can I, can I just yes, answer so like one reflection? I mean, yeah. I really see your point on that, but you know, I would give um, Deleuze, even Deleuze and Guattari more, more credit yeah. because it's not simply so. Again, if there's something. Um, Interesting in that book. So let me focus on which anti- book? Anti Oedipus. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think indeed there there can be one reading where you'd say there's a kind of riot, a pandemonium yeah. of forces, yeah, partial yeah. drives, and then they are getting kind of shaped, repressed, and so forth by yeah. external. But that's not what they argue. I mean, more specific, they say that the body already represses itself before this kind of repressive law, and that's why they say that the embodiment is a kind of inattention. You need at least two terms to think embodiment. Not only do you have the multiplicity of partial drives, but you need the body without order. Organs. And the reason why you need both those terms is they would say that the, the body is already a kind of chaos or problem mm. for itself. And the way it copes with itself is it tries to liquidate itself. So the body immediately, and that's not about an external. So again, mm. they're sensitive to that Lacanian idea that repression is not um, introduced into the psyche mm. sheerly by mm. external factors. They say the body itself becomes paranoiac and tries to fight against its own impulses in order to impose some kind of order on itself. And then they say, and I think this is a sophisticated point, then they would say, when social repression is effective, it's because it's able to exploit somehow the inherent natural, if you want, paranoia of the body. So that social repression Mm. is always hijacking another kind of mechanism. I think most Deleuzeans miss that point, to be honest. And so I think this... Now, having said that, so this is my argument that I think that there is a theory of negativity. The body without organs, you know, they, they... I mean. I'm not, and I don't think I'm stretching here. I mean, they, they literally say that these different partial objects or drives are repressed. I mean, they use by the body without organs. It tries to liquidate them, get rid of them, and then it attracts them back onto itself. And what they mean by intensity is actually the tension between something rejected out of the body and then and then you know, and then brought back to the body. It's a kind of for them, intensity does, doesn't just mean a bodily force, but it actually means that tension between a body and disembodiment. But okay, no, no, but, I, but the, the sorry, just the, the yeah, last yeah, point yeah. would be: I think there is a theory of negativity even in Antiedipus, but I think the Lacanian version. Ultimate is a different one, mm-hmm. and the reason why I think it's a different one is because still the body without organs and the partial drives, it's all about the kind of dynamism of bodily powers, mm-hmm. which have a very complex structure. Again, more complex than I think is usually mm-hmm. admitted um, by, by even Deleuzeans. But they don't have that notion, and that's a very interesting notion in Lacan, that there's some kind of negativity that doesn't partake, you could say, directly in the movement of the drives, but has to be represented in the unconscious by some kind of bodily representative like the objet A stands in for the missing subject and this is a kind of this is quite a different structure Um, so again if I can end on in some respects, I think I've, I've written a book that um, anybody, everybody could complain about because for, for some reason I'm, I'm much more um, how can I say, sympathetic or I extend a lot of hermeneutic generosity um, to Deleuze from a Lacanian standpoint, more than is usually extended. Uh, uh, on the other hand, I mean, 
for Deleuze, you can see that ultimately I keep resurrecting, bringing back these Lacanian notions and showing how their critique falls short. Um, if there's any, if, if, if the book is successful for me, it's because it actually manages to really delimit what I consider the core of this, this dispute about these different um, ideas of negativity. But, okay. okay, sorry Just to one, no, go on. No, 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 I agree with you. This is a tremendous problem because yeah. I think that the point I'm trying to make, you make it at some point there, these are for me the best parts of the book almost where you strictly distinguish the subject from all these bodily dynamics and so yes, on. The subject is the dead point. But we don't have time to do okay. this now. Just the final big theoretical remark ah. and then to final observations. The, the, the question that I told you I will ask you mm. is the following one. I see in what we all are doing, but we all, I mean... I'm proud to say, I think the two of us are part of a movement. We include Mladen Dolara, Lenka Zupancic, uh, Frank Ruda, Lorenzo, and so on. Who We work in this domain of psychoanalysis, philosophy, and so on. And uh, the problem that I see in philosophy is a very naive one. Up to a point, Derrida and even mm. Lacan still play the transcendental game. By the transcendental game, I mean, although it's not the transcendental subject, but the process, for example, when Lacan says the big other is always already here, we move in a circle, we cannot go beyond. And Lacan, at least the early Lacan, all these questions which he addresses courageously sometimes, like how did the symbolic order arouse out of natural uh, uh, animal interaction. And he has all these funny examples of dolphins playing, of, of lobsters interacting, and so on. But these are more or less for him at that point platonic myths, and so on, and so on. With Derrida, you find it even clearer, the dilemma I'm trying to pinpoint. You know, you have his mm. famous statement in Nyapada or text. There is no outside text. Although, of course, he doesn't mean the stupidity that there is no reality outside language. But what he means is ambiguous. On the one sense, it's still a meta-transcendental operation of there is no direct access to reality. It's all always already mm -hmm. against the background of writing of texture. It's still a kind of a meta-transcendental position. Mm -hmm. At the same time, sometimes... In some of his seminars, for example, when, how is he called? My God, I forgot his, uh, not family name, Jacob, the great French biologist. Uh, Francois. Francois, yes, sorry. He, he has a series of lectures where Derrida risks a very naive ontologization even and talks about how life, DNA, is already trace, it's already a game of difference and so on. So all of a sudden we are in a quite naive, to, if I may put it like this, realist ontology where our human mm. writing, or in the broadest sense, is just an ontological example of writing which is proper to life as such, or even Sometimes Derrida hints at the extreme and goes up, up to quantum physics, right. registration, and so on and so on. And my great struggle is, and this is my only disappointment, immanent criticism of this book, I compare it with you as a good Hegelian with yourself. 
I think you had in some of your other texts some more explicit passages in this very speculative direction. Mm-hmm. When you quote that poetic Lacan, you know how it is as if, uh, and uh, Lacan says they're the same as already Walter Benjamin and, and so on, it is as if the symbolic order brings out some pain which is already in nature itself and so on, all that speculative. Right. Sorry? This this wonderful line also I took from yeah. uh, from an artist that uh, who knows like maybe uh, in nature I mean uh, they're just wait- nature is just waiting for language so yeah. you know the fish can tell you how bad it is to always be swimming I yeah. mean in this yeah, set, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a wonder but okay no, finish okay, the question I can is, do you think it's a very brutal question do you think we are mm. ultimately limited to the some kind of transcendental dimension whatever we say sort of. the writing is here or so do you think these speculations are always only poetic ones or can right. we maybe somehow break out so I should uh, directly I mean okay you, you can I have a very dissatisfying you can, answer. You can take the fifth commandment. I, I have a very dissatisfying answer. answer, but I can say a couple things, and I can kind of answer more from the perspective also, let's say, not answering this yeah. this rather huge question, but, you know, at least how I tried to tackle yeah. it uh, in the book. Because you, know, you wrote more, you didn't, I'm imagining you, sorry to interrupt you, by my annual standards, where all the shit that I write, I include in my book. <laughs> and I noticed you didn't include yes, all yes, your yes, speculations. I have, I have some discipline. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, look, um, let me start by saying, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to say something like this. Um, okay. That um, this, this relationship, for me, I kind of I, I tackle this in the book more, talking about the relationship, going back to this old metaphysical, the relationship between nature and culture yeah. and the transition between the two. And I'm kind of tempted to say something like this, although I haven't quite worked this out. But, you know, in a way, there is no relationship between nature and culture. From the standpoint of nature, there's no such thing as culture. Everything is nature. And from the standpoint of culture, there's no such thing as nature because everything is mediated by, by culture. And there's kind of no transition between the two. There's almost kind of a just you shift, you know. And um, I think with the, wait, I think with the, what I was trying to do in the book, so the problem, and that's why I think psychoanalysis is very strong. And I don't necessarily think psychoanalysis has the answer for everything. So, you know, I'm trying to also delimit um, what I think the object, you know, the research domain of psychoanalysis mm. is and how that can illuminate. So that doesn't mean it has the answers to, to yeah. all problems. Or it, it, it can also, to some extent, I think, be um, a bit agnostic or aloof to this question um, for its own functioning. But I think what's interesting is that, um, so in Lacanian theory, um, well, let me back up. One, one other small comment. I am alluding to um, a tradition that I think has not been maybe it's too strong to say excluded, but a tradition that's been a little bit forgotten in um, contemporary, let's say, neuroscientifically inspired philosophy. And that's this kind of very negative um, nature of philosophizing. So at a certain point, I'm also looking at like novelists who are more or less contemporary with Freud, like uh, one of my favorites, Blaise Sandrard or Thomas Mann, who have this very um, idea that nature itself is sick. That it's not about vibrant matter or bodies that matter, but really sick matter. And the first mistake, it's not even like Freud said that somehow life wants to go back to the non-living, but mm. even the non-living wants to go back to the nothing. I mean, mm. you already find this in Marquis de Sade yeah, and yeah, Thomas yeah, Mann. Yeah. And so. so in some ways, I'm, I'm using, I use these references strategically to suggest a certain aspect in contemporary materialist debates that I think is not, um, if we can think of a kind of more pathological optic on these materialist debates. But okay. 
That's not um, deeply developed. That's true. Because it's essentially still a foil for my main interest, which is this problem of um, philosophy of psychopathology. And I think that in Lacanian psychoanalysis, what for me is so interesting is it wants to study that transition between nature and culture. But it does so by saying fundamentally there is no transition. And that lack of transition itself is the fundament, the basis for why there's an unconscious. Yes, but still... That's it. Now, now if you say still, I have another... Okay, I can't answer that. But I can at least make more precise what I think the psychoanalytic contribution to that is. Then then I think at least that would have the value, if you're more precise than R, you can reject it or not, or move forward or not, or whatever. And that would be to say that, um, again... um, there is no account of a kind of smooth transition, but there's necessarily a kind of leap. And that leap for psychoanalysis can't be renaturalized. So I will yeah. never... So again, some of my comrades, if I can put it that way, um, your work you tend to refer to quantum, quantum physics. Um, and in other people's work, like Adrian Johnston, instead to the realm of biology. Um, I think, you know, the argument that I take from Lacan is you would not find a kind of smooth transition so there's some negativity in nature and then we finally find a fully and then step by step we would find this kind of fully fledged um, psychical negativity that there's a kind of leap but that leap itself is the very nature of psychical negativity Um, and that that transition between nature and culture is part of nature it must be in some formal sense if everything is nature or everything, but from the perspective, I would take the parallax from the perspective of culture, and it's, in a sense, there is no nature. I mean, what if we just thought that there is no priority of one or the other? But I mean, the weird thought again, and I think um, both okay, but, Deleuze but, and um, Lacan share this: is you should think. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Know, you should think the the intersection oddly has priority listen, over its terms. Can I ask you something? It's, and that's yeah. the weird idea listen, that, that there's intersection of nature. Please don't oh. laugh at me. I'm a diabetic. Can you open the question? I have to run to the toilet. I thought you were going to like to ask me. No, much no, about no, no. I'm, I'm I so no sad. Idea. It's very vulgar. That's the no, call no, of no, nature. No, but that's know. perfect. That's so, that saves I'm me. So from sorry. This, uh, I'm so, but please start the debate. Okay. Sure. I mean, this saves me from I'm the so impression. But uh, <laughs> I'm so. Maybe it's good to open. Yes, to the, okay. I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah. Can, can I see some hands and then we can take, start taking questions? <laughs> or everything is just clear. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just a quick question about the complaint and its uh, kinship, let's say, with um, what we call prayer. Yeah. And how is prayer kind of like a sublimated complaint? And what's the difference? What, what can you say? I don't know. What do you, what, well, I'm tempted immediately to throw that back at you and just be. I don't know. That's interesting. What do you think? I mean, I. I mean, complaining can be a kind of liturgy, and and some liturgy. You know, there are liturgies that are, kind of, you know, in in the, in religion, of course, are highly developed. I mean, complaints. I mean, I so think, what's, think what's, just what's a joke. The mm-hmm. uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. I mean, that's one of the things that I quickly came across in my research that it becomes very hard to actually define complaint in terms of delimiting it Mm. um, clearly from other forms of expression because the more you start thinking about it, um, really, I mean, I'm not saying everything is a complaint, but it starts to, you know, quite quickly insinuate itself elsewhere. So at a certain point, I mean, I'm this sort of complaining amateur, I think, but at a certain point I started to try to look, well, did literary theorists try to define it as a genre, for instance? Um, so I t- took kind of seriously the, also a historical question, and I found some. 
um, scholarship on this, but not so much, and it wasn't so clear. So I don't have an answer. I mean, I really just don't know. But I found like some of the most interesting literature on like medieval. Uh, and where they said, you know, there was a, and I talked about that the, there's kind of four, the complaint genre, there was four main kinds of complaints. And I mean, the most wonderful complaint, of course, is the love complaint, you know, which yeah. cordially love is a kind of cultivation of complaining is the very form of, of love, which I think was very, do- uh, impa- impacted a lot, let's say, on Western eros, if you want. Mm. So, the... Um, it's a really good question, actually, because basically, yeah, uh, is, anything, is there anything that is not a complaint? I mean, you start, you know, the, 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 the way you define it, everything becomes, you know, poetry, philosophy, everything well, you communicate. Know, I didn't complain. start with an a priori de- definition. I started yes. with some commonsensical notions, and then I actually did uh, some historical research mm. to try to understand. And, and, um, and, of course, you find very many interesting things, but I didn't find a clear um, mm. definition of a, of a kind of, of a, of a genre Mm. and of course then complaining does become very I mean for me you know my question of course coming from philosophy and not from theology was more how could we relate complaint to to critique for instance and I think that we could see critique as a kind of um, sublimation or refinement a real cultivation of um, of complaining and I think that's a funny perspective um, on that problem of philosophy, on the, on the critical vocation of philosophy. Mm. Um, so how do you relate complaint to Kant's notion of critique? Right. The big question, expected, I mean, predictable, which is no longer a critique, but just critique in the sense well, of... Well, there's an answer to that, maybe not totally satisfying. Yeah. I mean, at some point, and that's meant as a kind of, okay, it's a witticism, yeah. but I say there should be a critique of pure complaint. So this, in German, like, Reinhard Beschwerde, there should be... Yeah. And, and, and ultimately, that would be the fourth missing critique, which would provide the key for understanding how the other critiques relate and that again would be the question of what went wrong or what went all too right at the very beginning so and then that leads me to the question of what would be the pure form of complaining so I think that would that would actually be a kind of supplement to understanding then Kant's critical project in other words where the problem of critique would like reflect on its own limits and to try to understand the genesis of its categories now now I'm saying something that's um, let me say that's uh, very ambitious and I only you know I don't really uh, I don't you know write about Kant for 200 pages or something but I mean I think that's a kind of provocative I hope anyway provocative way to, to again to raise complaining to a philosophical concept and not simply as a kind of everyday nuisance or or, or something. I also talk about whalers. By the way, you were mentioning that yes, in your class today. about the weepers. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, Deleuze has these crazy line, wonderful. Yeah. I think that he says, uh, you know, if I would have, uh, if I wasn't a philosopher and if I would have been born a woman, I would have liked to have been a weeper. That's his dream. So his his fantasy is he says I would have been one of these whalers like just who would be known as a virtuoso but complainer. Maybe we should not just add that. Exactly. We, we are paid to cry for to other yes. people. Yes. Oh, how wrong is but yes. Yes. Exactly. But that's interesting. No, yeah. that's a very people interesting can go fantasy. On their daily work, they pay us to right. to, to cry for them. <laughs> can, can I, sorry to if I can say just one more thing about that. This is on a new project, but my next book is about uh, this Kafka story, Investigations of a Dog, and I discovered in this. Uh, Book of Cervantes has a book on the dialogue of the dogs, uh, Colloquio de los Perros, and he has, and they they have a wonderful conversation about philosophy. The dogs start talking, and they say, "But isn't philosophy just slander?" So as soon as you start talking, isn't the basic impulse of all human, you know, all language to start slandering and gossiping? 
And isn't philosophy just a mask for slander and gossip? I also think this is you a wonderful story. company. Point. Did Mladen tell you, <laughs> Mladen asked Agamben, ah. who as a young boy met in <laughs> Serizhi Lachalle that Heidegger. And since Heidegger was the old guy protected by Jean oh, this Dauphin, story, right. yeah, and he asked Heidegger two questions. What did he read of Walter Benjamin oh, and of Kafka? Okay, a good reactionary Heidegger's answer was, who is Benjamin? Uh, what of Kafka he mentioned only that story of no the no no I mean, it's another no one. it's it's the borough oh, it's the sorry the because that's story. it makes sense because Milan be actually so has a wonderful essay yeah. about the borough and the borough is you know this. Uh, No, investigations, if I can say, Investigations Doc has not been written on, and the one funny comment I did find, now I do propaganda for my next yes, project, but the one comment I did find was Walter Benjamin, when, you know, mm-hmm. when he wrote his essay on Kafka in the correspondence with Adorno, he actually says, you know, the only story I never figured out was the investigations of a dog. Just as that's the one story I never understood. But uh, just so, the wait. last thing, sorry, very briefly, you know that Agamben's impression of Heidegger there, was the one all the time complaining. His memory of, you know, they had at Cerezi La Salle this kitschy, authentic farmer's breakfast, you know, like original butter there. And Heidegger all the time complained, you took too much butter, I want that butter, and so on. Lacan had that impression as well. When he gave him a lift in his car, Heidegger kept complaining that Lacan was driving too fast, and Lacan right. just drove faster. Yeah, But actually, okay. I was thinking, You know, that line from the list that I did notice from your book is something that you, know, you don't really deal, I think, in the book maybe about the gender of complaining. I mean, it right, worries that's true. me that, that's true. you know, I mean, like, I that mean, would be very if interesting, men are and doing it, it's called philosophy. If women are doing it, it's called complaining. complaining right. I mean, that's what, you know, from, and it's a bit, um, I mean, philosophy to me, you know, the way you, you right. describe complaining, I mean, all philosophy is complaining, all communication <laughs> is complaining. I mean, why would we bother well, talking? I'm complaining right now. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a radical thesis that I'm, yes. not unsymp- you know, I, I, I'm not unsympathetic to that idea, but you would have to defend it more strongly than immediately just to say... I won't take as long as you. But you're right. I, that is, um, I take that criticism, I, that's right, and I thought about that. But I don't deal with that, and that would be another. So, in a sense, what's funny, if I can just be very um, confessional, I guess, for a moment, is that, um, you know, when I was working on this, I really wanted to resist or find something to do with, the, again, that genre of compare and contrast, which is, which is um, important and yet deeply dull on some level as well. And so I tried to find a way into the problem that was kind of neither Lacanian Um, nor Deleuzean, just a completely odd sort of What way into it. What is there in it. the world? Um, It's neither Lacanian. Wait, 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 it's not explicitly, that's not an explicit concept in either thinker, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> so I tried to introduce via complaint, but what I discovered is, wow, this is a fantastic topic, even better than the... So I, I could have, at a certain point, I almost just said, oh, you could write a whole book on this. And so I do a kind of history of complaints, but indeed there's plenty of things. Um, if you want a more comprehensive study, You know, and indeed, that is one area I did think about. I, the gender of complaining, that would be, of course, mm. that, that's extremely coded. Yeah. Uh, that's extremely yeah. gender-coded yeah. Um, genre. But, but, you know, I would also say, I can also tell you that the problem of, like, sexuation in general <laughs> is not, like, a problem I really deal with in the book. Because, mm. after all, there has to be limits in life. And so there's other... I'll write about that. In, but but I, so I don't deal be, with... Yeah. I just but, have to admit that. Don't Jim. be afraid. I'm not that. Would you agree? I was trying to think that a philosopher, the only philosopher that I know who never complains, is for me Hegel. 
He basically <laughs> just understands everything. Yeah, yeah. It's a reversal of this or that. Can you imagine Hegel complaining about everything? Not human, then. Okay. Jean um, has a question. Uh, in relation to the contemporary um, situation, mm. um, philosophy and the psychopathy is pathological. And I'm thinking of the dialogue that's going on between the Lacanians and um, um, Catherine Malibu uh-huh. um, from neuroscience and brain science. She's been here a lot in conversation with Lacanians, become Eric Laurent and, and many others to London and they've been in a conversation and recently Jacqueline Rose here at Berkeley with her and she comes as you know from philosophy and comes to it because of the pathology of her her, her grandmother who had Alzheimer's so she argues with the Lacanians that the subject the category of the subject the unconscious sexuality and the body are going to be deconstructed by brain science and the Lacanians seemed quite open to some of the things that she was sort of offering. And my question is, do you think um, the post-edible clinic that the Lacanians admit to now is, a, is the determination from, for that from brain science, neuroscience, or from the schizoanalytic clinic? Mm. Um, so it's the post-edible is one of the things that comes to mind and I just and the, the fact that it's become primarily a psychotic clinic <coughs> the Lacanian clinic has become primarily a psychotic clinic it's moved from neurotic to psychotic right. is this a schizoanalytic influence is this coming from the critique from Deleuze and Guattari or is it coming from brain science or oh, other yeah. determinations because yeah. I've heard Lacanians in this exchange with Catherine Malibu say that the unconscious is very very different the body is different. Sexuality is different. Subjectivity has to yes. be rethought. Therefore, symptomology is different. The clinic has to be rethought. And I just wonder, what are the determinations? Is it the conjunction between schizoanalysis and the critiques coming from Deleuze and Guattari? Or is it brain science? Or is it other kinds of determinations right. to do with neoliberal globalization, technology, and whatever? Yeah, okay, that's a, obviously, that's a, very, um, that's a very interesting and a very um, contemporary, and let's say, a very difficult question that I can't, okay, just give a simple formula for. But I can... I can give some indications. Um, one is that um, I got very fascinated also by um, the fundaments, let's say, of brain science and the kind of image they had of psychopathology. And I was very fascinated by Norbert Wiener, who's really the grandfather of cognitive science, you know, the, the inventor of cybernetics. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody reads this, as far as I know, but in, in the book on cybernetics, command and control, and so forth, he, he has a chapter on psychopathology, and he actually has a very dark um, cybernetic anti-humanism. It's not just that the brain is a kind of a machine, neuronal networks, and so forth, but he actually says at one point the brain is kind of overdeveloped, and it's clear that it's on its way to extinction, like this horn of these dinosaurs that died out. So you see that even in kind of Wiener, this idea that somehow um, has a kind of, um, I think, interesting take or something that's forgotten sometimes in, in theorists of like neuroplasticity and so forth that are always emphasizing the kind of, let's say, creativity of the brain, that there's something deeply wrong with the brain or a kind of pathological optic um, that... that um, that I was interested in. Okay, but that's not really a serious engagement with Malibu. And also, my book is not really about that. 
So I can give some comments, but they go they go beyond. I would say that in some respects I'm, I'm rather conservative. Um, I don't jump on the bandwagon of saying that somehow the edible clinic is gone and that we exist in a new, in brave new world of completely new diagnostic categories. I think for me, and that's something I said, so I try to defend. I'm very interested in those classic categories. I think that also. Um, that the normativity of the Oedipus complex is something that's still very active, that we don't sort of live in simply a purely permissive sort of post-Oedipal age. And that I think that a lot of contemporary Lacanians, and I think maybe on this point we're in deep agreement, in a weird way end up recapitulating what I think, what I consider a vulgarized version of of Deleuze. And that fascinates me, that this idea that fundamentally we live in a kind of culture where there's just enjoyment and drives, and then we look at different symbolic prohibitions or ways of structuring drives, um, was never um, Lacan's idea. And that's not for me what's at stake in this kind of um, universalization of psychosis. I think that um, for Lacan, you could say, you know, I'm so interested in these, so I'm interested in what we can get out of these classical clinical distinctions, which I don't think have been, or at least, indeed, my approach is a bit conservative, that I don't think we should throw those away too quickly. That I think there's still a lot to be learned from them, precisely as I tried to develop them as like real subjective types or as reflecting fundamental problems and crises and subjectivity. I think that the the one difficulty I have with Malibu, or where I'm, where I can't follow exactly, but you know, I don't know her. I also have to say I don't know her that well. Okay, so I'm still working on this. But the, where I don't follow precisely is the the relegation of like psychoanalysis to problems of meaning. So that Freudian psychoanalysis only applies, let's say, every every kind of psychical trauma or or, diff, or complaint in psychoanalysis somehow refers to this kind of ambiguous realm of of meaning. Uh, and and neuro, neuro, the new neurological problems confront us really with um, problems that can't that have no hermeneutic interpretive dimension whatsoever. That they're simply, um, let's say, neuronal um, problems and real erasures of subjectivity, like in Alzheimer's and so forth. And actually, I think from the beginning, and I, that's not like late Lacan. I really think that's part of the core of the theory was that it wasn't simply about the ambiguity, the double meanings, the double entendres, and so forth, the interpretation, but trying to delineate that the unconscious fundamentally is based on, uh, or the symbolic order is fundamentally a disorder, or that the realm of sense is fundamentally based on nonsense, or that the subject already represents a kind of whole that can't be recuperated into circuits of meaning. So I think, and I, I, yeah, on this point, I really think we're in deep agreements, because I know that Salvador has developed this point that the Lacanian subject, you can also develop this in a more Cartesian direction, mm-hmm. already um, represents a kind of erasure or night of the world in this more Hegelian sense, mm-hmm. whatever. And that, second death. And that, you, uh, oh, I, I, I don't use that language, but I use this language of death or second yeah, death, or I develop that, okay, with other references. And I think that Malibu is too fast. Yeah. To um, to sort of delimit psycho- the field of psychoanalysis to just those old fashioned problems where you know you would have some ambiguity of some kind of sexual trauma and you don't know what it meant and it haunts you and you try to recuperate it into you know interpretation. I think that, I think that Lacanian psychoanalysis has a more radical conception, let's say, of non-meaning. Um, that's not now. I don't think that's a fully sufficient answer, but it's a step in the direction anyway. anyway. Stephen, it's a step, and then Slava. Uh, thanks. Um, something's been troubling me about the complaint stuff, which I'm, I'm sure you deal with in the book, but we haven't, I haven't read the book. And, and that's that the different kinds of complaints seem to matter enormously to me. And just, just to give the example I work on, I suppose, is there's, there's a difference between 
the complaint there is a wine, a kind of you know, in, in, in the Jewish field, a kvetch, mm-hmm. and there's a and the complaint was really directed at some mode of oppression. And just to give the, the biblical example here, so the, the the Israelites were in the wilderness and they're getting fed beautifully on manna all day, you know, every day, right. they don't do anything, and they complain. They say we haven't had any meat, and, and God has <laughs> yes. the perfect response. He says, "You want meat? I'll give you quails, and I'll give you so many quails, you will be stuffed full of them, and you will be sick, and you'll hate them." And stuff, you know, yes, perfect complaint. But when they, when the Israelites are in slavery and they start to complain, the, the biblical response to that is, let's free them. Mm. Let's free them. There is a difference, sure, and I, I say, I'm sure you yes. deal with this. There is a difference between the wine, which was basically saying, I'm unhappy, and the complaint, which says, the structures need to be challenged here. Right. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say, you know, see what you think. I mean, read it and then see what you think. But I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, I, maybe from your perspective, I maybe don't deal um, adequately with that because that wasn't my focus. And I think there, and I, I, I really forget his name, but there, there's very little written about complaints. But I discovered this one um, popular, well-known um, English philosopher. I'm sorry, he wrote a book on complaining. And the core of that... Sorry, the name just escapes me. But in the end, it wasn't helpful for me. I mean, I don't cite it. And the core of that book is actually kind of moral psychology of trying to make a hierarchy of so-called, you know, let's say mere whining and then a proper complaint. And I actually sort of, you know, for other reasons, wanted to put aside that kind of taxonomy um, with a double goal. I mean, on the one hand, to say that Again, I wasn't interested in this moralistic question. So I'm not saying your question is necessarily a moralistic one, but I wanted to avoid that question to actually, again, to simply say complaining is an interesting object of, of, of inquiry. And then I had a very specific reason for that, you know, a specific way. And that was this problem of the, the, the kind of pure complaint or the ultimate, you know, complaint. Um, um, so that's the direction I went in. But, you know, again... The problem of the gender of the complaint would be interesting, and then the problem of the the idea of a protest or injustice. But you know that's not my that wasn't my focus because one has to remember also it's not a book about complaining per se, but it was a kind of strategy, a way into a problem to discuss and hopefully from a fresh perspective to I don't know to spark something in this uh, debate about negativity. So instead of immediately saying negativity is defined this way, and uh, you know I try to enter into it through this anthropological dimension. But indeed, that problem of injustice um, is very interesting, you know, linked to complaint. But again, maybe there is something illuminating from this perspective of analyzing these so-called like pure forms of complaint as ultimate injustices, let's say. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the best I can do. For- okay, Zizek. Uh, very brief. Yes, promise. sure. And then there was a question here. Oh, yes, okay. After seven. Sorry, what's yeah, your you order go. now? No, I, clear. Yeah, I, I, I like before. clear orders. Uh, Fred, just briefly about complaint. You know what I would be tempted to mm. say? That there must be a way in, if such a thing still exists, which I doubt more and more, real emancipatory politics. L- let's say you have Hitler. Mm. I think it's somehow inappropriate to say that we should be complaining about Hitler. No, you simply diagnose him as evil, let's liquidate him. I don't think that when Jews were talking about horrors in Germany that we should even use the word complain. I would use your term complain in a much more specific way, you know. 
Like, complain always is for me perverted in the sense that you secretly enjoy it right. and so on. So I would move in that direction. But very briefly, mm-hmm. just about your question, my deep agreement with you, and I can tell you the whole story, because I was there in Paris 30, 40 years ago. Millerians, for a long time, they denied this topic. The line was, no, all this borderline is American bullshit, no, nothing changed. They even I got much criticism at the time, losing nerves, all these Hollywood movies and so on. Then, I don't know Mm. if you noticed, some 15 to 20 years ago it began, a total reversal. Miller, now his political comments often sound to me, sorry, with arrogance, as a bad vulgarized version of myself years ago. You know, all this quick popular analysis, and he makes grave mistakes. Just read what he wrote after her first appearance about Sarah Palin as new type for femininity who will crush Barack Obama and so on and so on. But but what I'm saying, I deeply agree with you, is that I much agree with early Miller who gave a very good reading, he convinced me, 20, 30 years ago, of borderline as typically a historical shift in hysteria. That hysteric subject traditional provokes a master when you get a modern type of expert knowledge, no longer direct figure of the master, you get borderline and so on. So it's, uh, I think that especially, you know what's the danger? Then what you get, the worst text of Miller that I've read recently, it's his psychoanalysis, the real for the 20th century. Yes, it's madness. It, yeah. He goes into how we have now a new real. He even denounces in the most vulgar pseudo-Delesian way, formulas of situation are still symbolic attempts to discipline this real, but we have now a real totally outside law. He he buys capitalist ideology. Mm-hmm. Capitalism presents itself some, some pure flux of desire outside castration, outside all mm-hmm. limitation, and so on. It's mm-hmm. horrible. And I totally agree with you. More than ever, we should say, no, we are not dealing with universalized psychosis. It's not pure, real. Capitalism yeah. is still yeah. a radical, symbolic antagonism. They even regress on the Lacanian notion of the real. Lacan says, the real is a, a deadlock, an impasse of symbolization. The most subversive Lacanian real is precisely totally immanent, just an inner crack obstacle of the symbolic. I think this is a political, not just theoretical, but even a political catastrophe. You go on this path and you end up what Miller is doing now, an advisor in the electoral board for, for Sarkozy. Yeah. You know, can I say well, just as a little... Um, I thought of a word somewhere saying I have a better answer for you, Stephen, about the, the problem with the complaint. It's not just about a, sorry, going back to complaint, it's not just about a, a more problem, but it's actually, uh, I kind of have a joke about this where I reread Spinoza and, and say that the ethics should be read as the art of complaint because there's different levels of the kind of perfection of complaining if you read Spinoza in a kind of odd way. But I think that, you know, from a psychoanalytic perspective, um, the problem is not so much indeed. This standard, again, moralistic discourse, okay, the self-serving complaints versus a really constructive complaint. But it's the question when a complaint really touches on something, um, that it doesn't just um, 
So it's not just a kind of self-enjoyment that somehow is within the ambit of mm. the ego, but when the complaint really touches on something that changes or that can't be admitted, and then Lacan, even Lacan does have a few lines about complaint, and he says, what matters about the complaint, in a way, is what's beyond the complaint. That the, At some point, the complaint will fail, that it falls into silence, which means it touches on a point that, in a way, you can't even complain. Then you know something interesting happened. So that's that's maybe an imminent. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not a it's not an external kind of moralistic discourse about what are good complaints, but, but a kind of imminent psychoanalytic way of understanding how the complaints can evolve yes. within the process of psychoanalysis. And so that's 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 a better answer. That's how I yes. try to present the it's question. A, I think that's a better answer. It's about for the addressee, isn't it? Who are you addressing every time you are complaining? Mm. Um, I think we'll take huh? our last question because we're nearly eight, it's nearly eight o'clock and we have a well, despite the difficulties involved in delimiting um, the concept of complaint, I cannot help but be reminded of the ancient Greek concept sophrosyne, uh, the idea of measure. Right. And um, I was just wondering um, whether you would agree that uh, since um, I also thought of the um, example, uh, well, uh, uh, that something like the Holocaust would just be too much to complain about. It goes into the sublime. Mm-hmm. And um, wouldn't complaint be, in itself, be a form of measure or sufrosing? It gives us a grip on reality right. and an entry point. Well, I mean, you know, I think Deleuze would actually say no. I mean, he would say there's two types of complaint. There's a complaint that's, that's a coping mechanism, and I think that's the most common. Then. But then he has a crazy idea, you know, accept it or not. But the, the crazy wager is that complaint could, you know, precisely be something that, that doesn't allow you to cope anymore. But actually, and again, um, that's, the, that's the kind of interesting thing to think of, that the complaint would no longer be my complaint, but would actually be the thing, that thing, actually somehow expressing itself out of me. That that moment that I'm actually thrown out of myself and that complaint is no longer about um, my own measure or balance. I have one other line on this though. I can approach, because I think that concept of measure, balance, uh, limit is extremely important and something I really devote a lot of attention to uh, related to the concept of pleasure. And of course that's very important for for the Greek uh, philosophy, it's everything without measure becomes evil in a certain sense. That's the kind of Greek uh, moral wisdom. Um, and you can look at it this way. That What's interesting is if you look at complaint as an activity in the Aristotelian sense, like a real drive, a positive drive, um, where I think the modern notion of limit is different, or the modern uh, idea of a human existence is different from a classical one, is Aristotle would say, you know, pleasures are naturally self-limiting. Um, and if something is wrong with your pleasure, it means that there's something ontologically corrupt, in a way, in that in that being. Um, but if you just think about that Aristotelian idea of pleasure, that pleasure is basically what reinforces and perfects an activity, you could say, well, if it really reinforces that activity, that activity, so if I like to complain, I'll do it more and more, and I won't respect certain limits. Or, for example, if I like to do philosophy, it means that I just want to continue thinking and thinking about philosophical problems. Um, it means that when I get tired, you know, I'll smoke a cigarette or drink coffee because I don't want to go to bed because my thought process should go on and on. Um, it means, you know, that, um, that um, I'll be annoyed at my partner because the function of the partner at some point is to tell you to stop working and go to bed. You know, you have to ignore them because you're not interested in limits. That pleasure is actually, real pleasure, enjoyment, I think in a Lacanian sense, is precisely an experience of a loss of limits. 
you know, or everybody knows a speaker at a lecture, for example, who can't who can't stop talking. That's why you need a moderator because at some point they say, no, there has to be a limit. The limit is external to the logic of an activity that simply wants to unfold itself, and that's why I also think, in a, in a weird way, and this is a paradox, that all pleasure. Uh, in a certain point becomes disembodied or at least it becomes it comes into it comes into a conflict with the body because the body in the end means one thing it means you're limited because in the end the body gets tired or it has to go to the bathroom or or it has to eat it has to do all these stupid things which basically interrupt your pure pleasure and the greatest image of the pleasure without limits, of course, is the Aristotelian one, the God that's thinking itself for all eternity. Mm. And in a sense, I would say that even when Freud talks about thumb-sucking as a kind of pleasure, that's the same thing as the Aristotelian God. It would just continue sucking forever. But of course, it, the baby gets tired, and that's an external, that's simply a stupid external thing that stops the pleasure. It's just a limit coming from your stupid body. And the, but the logic of pleasure, I think, the logic of enjoyment as opposed to pleasure, let's say, you know, is precisely an experience of law, the, the loss of limits. So I think that concept of limit is extremely interesting. Yes. Or, or of, the, the, the idea of measure, and I tried to bring back from Greek philosophy and use that to... to make sense of to redefine some Lacanian concepts that I think also sometimes you know people will just repeat this almost as dogma you know pleasure is one thing enjoyment is the is you know what really matters but do they really make an attempt to try to define or give a kind of even phenomenological sense to that and that's why I return to um okay, okay. Yeah, okay. you one have sentence. one minute less, uh, less. Uh, this last question Sorry. it really intrigued me how nonetheless I can imagine a situation even in the extreme constellation of uh, Auschwitz or whatever, where a complaint precisely in this moderate form of proper limit can all, almost play a positive function of returning dignity. Like, I was trying to imagine you get in uh, that, uh, that shitty soup, you know, with whatever it is, some rotten, ro- rotten vegetable and a piece of uh, rotten potato. Yeah. And then, for me, to say something like among prisoners there who watch like, my God, uh, my, my potato is not properly cooked and so on. It's a totally absurd thing. But in a way, it's saving dignity there. You know, like to find even in an extreme situation, I would not blame you or anyone if you cannot do it. If you are broken down, you are broken down. But for me, it's an extremely courageous act. There, in the middle of Auschwitz, to say, I didn't like today the taste of my potato. You know, it's something almost tragically beautiful. On that note, uh, on that optimistic note, how even in Auschwitz you find (laughs) I will save everybody's dignity by imposing this limit now. Uh, I like to thank Madison for organizing it um, Aaron's publishers for coming and bringing the books which will be on sale in G, G16 Slava for giving us more there? time we yeah, do yeah, have yeah. drinks there have Slava drink. for coming Aaron for being here and especially and, all and of you you are not Hegelian you I'm should not, thank I'm yourself you should thank no. yourself <laughs>